Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HashMap on Tap. I want to thank you for tuning in, and it is really a good day for show. I'm Kelly. He's Randy. Following in the theme, Randy, of our industry-focused discussions, we're going to talk a little retail today, and it's great to spend some time with you. What are you having for a drink? This afternoon. I am so glad that you asked, Kelly. I'm having Dogfish Head, which you had in our last show. Oh, yeah. I'm having their pumpkin ale, which I despise that spelling, but it's a pumpkin ale. It's not quite mid-September, first third of September now. For the first time, has gotten a little chilly here in Oklahoma. I think a, a low below 50 today, and I'm feeling fall. Orange stuff, man. We, we got some of our fall decorations out. I am full Halloween mode. So this pumpkin ale came at the right time. And I'll tell you what, it is fantastic. Very drinkable. It's, it's not usually something I would get, but every every fall I, I do try to have at least one kind of sweeter, like pumpkin style beer. And this this is really hitting the spot. What are you having? Very nice. Very, yeah. Anytime you've got leaves turning, temperature going down a little bit, that, that sounds like a good match. I've got a I've got a beer from Real Ale Brewing Company. They're in Blanco, Texas, a little town, a couple of thousand people out over close to San Antonio. It's called Moonwalk Zero Gravity, and it is a uh, it's another IPA, six percent ABV, and okay. drinking uh, crisply and pretty bitterly today, which is typical, right? Of uh, yeah, of uh, of these beers, but uh, it's it's again in that style that I like. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna enjoy that today. But Blanco, Texas. I'm originally from a um, went to high school in a, in a tiny little school uh, that was about the same size as Blanco. So it's, uh, it's got yeah. some, some roots for me there thinking back as I'm, uh, as I'm having this beer. Oh, fantastic. That's great. So today talking about retail, like we've done a couple times now, I want to jump in first into our kind of the hash map perspective of what we mean when we say retail. So we're talking about different companies in this space. It can get kind of broad. What do you what do you think of when we say retail industry? What kind of companies are we talking about? Yeah, it's I think you and I could probably come up with six, seven, eight, maybe twelve categories. It is very broad. Yeah. You've got the maybe call them traditional department stores, which seem to all be going away right now. But you're yeah. You know, your Macy's, your JCPenney's, maybe traditionally you've gone to a, a mall type setup, right? And, and you see these types of stores. You've got, uh, obviously, uh, grocery supermarkets that that fall into that retail space as well. Uh, what's popped up, what, in the last, would you say, 15 or 20 years? Kind of these big warehouse type stores, your Costco's and Sam's and those types of companies. Yeah. The specialty big box kind of guys that, whether it's appliances, maybe a Best Buy, or it's, you know, a Lowe's, Home Depot type, those kind of things. What, what, that's a few that I'm thinking of off the top. Do you have a couple? You know, from my perspective, especially now, I've always been kind of a a recluse. So I think a lot about e-commerce. I mean, would you call that retail or would you say that's a different? 100%. Yeah. Okay. Then yeah, I, I see, you know, see an Amazon or even some of these not quite retailer, retail space tools like Postmates, for example, or Instacart, where They'll, they'll go out, and this is more restaurant area, but like for grocery, for example, Instacart, you get on there digitally, you say what you want, they go grab it and bring it to you. I, I would say that's retail adjacent. And then, of course, there's like convenience stores, right, or gas stations, those kind of things. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, you know, what's interesting, I mean, you look at retail and, you know, you can look at all the stats. I mean, still, the major, even with all the e-commerce that we're doing today, how, how large Amazon has grown and in, in the whole group of companies that are that are doing things online, it's still a pretty small percentage of overall really? retail. Yeah, overall retail sales, somewhere in that, you know, 12 to 15%. And you'd think about it as, as much higher than that, but there's still a lot of us 
that are going in person to grab something. I think it's part of it maybe is due to convenience. If I'm, you know, you, yeah. you, you, uh, I know you've been doing some, some, uh, home improvement work lately and think about it. If you need a, a quarter inch drill bit and don't have it on hand and you're trying to put pictures up or something like that, you really don't even want to wait till next day. You want to jump down to Lowe's or home Depot, get that quarter inch drill bit and, and get back and, and finish that job. Right. See, so, see, and I'll say that I think that's almost a generational thing. Cause for me, it's like, I wait you'll you'll wait. You'll wait. Yeah, because I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't want to go in and talk to like people I don't understand. But mm. like the value of the like professional who understands this space, it's just so rare for yeah. me to have that experience. So yeah, I go, I go to wire cutter or wherever, some review site, they yeah. tell me which one to get. I order it and I wait. Yeah. Well, the the whole physical versus digital is is really interesting when you think about it. I you know, I I was um in while we were prepping for the show, I was just looking at who who has the most physical locations. And you, you think of companies yeah. like uh, Dollar General, 15,000 locations, even a Walgreens, we see them all over the place, 14,000. Yeah. Oh man, you have thousands of stores. Well, how many mobile devices are there? How many unique mobile users are there? You just talked about, hey, I'm just gonna order online. 5 billion, 10 billion types of unique mobile users that yeah. huge majority of those have smartphones today, right? So yeah. if, you know, 70, 75, 80% of people in the U.S. have a smartphone, the convenience factor in their reach from a retail perspective versus 14,000 in-person locations versus let me go grab 77% of 300 million Americans that have smartphones. Yeah. It's it's incredible, right? And then not to mention everything else worldwide. So to me, if I'm, if I'm a retailer, I'm thinking about how can I expand uh, my presence and and obviously, it's uh, it, it's happening really quickly. Obviously, Amazon has also <laughs> pushed people in a lot of different ways as they've yeah. grown over the last what you know twenty years or so. So, so let me ask you this: um, I struggled with this because I think if you look at like a financial like breakdown of the economy, people would say these are different sectors. But would you consider restaurants to be a separate sector from retail? It's a great question. Actually, I thought about that as well, and I I did not include those. It, it, yep. it's, it is a. I think you could include it, but if, if you, it, it it really does have to stand on its own to me. Yeah. But it is a it is a high touch industry. It is a in in a lot of cases it's a, it's a very physical industry. You know, you're you're going to go to a restaurant and yeah, maybe that's where that's coming from for yeah. me. Is I just and also like the data challenges or the, the actual like the patterns of the things people ask us to do across, you know, the, the Walgreens retail experience, the gas station, you know, the, the quick service, you know, restaurant environment, they're really similar, right? They're not yeah. totally distinct use cases. Maybe that's why I'm bucketing them in a way that's not appropriate. I, I feel like we could certainly talk about them here. There's so, there, again, it's one of those subsectors in retail, if you will, that is, that is, yeah. a, uh, you, you almost have to spend time on the restaurant industry on its own, I think, because there's so many more complications uh, with that, when you start looking at at data, you start looking at you know the effects of whether it be the pandemic or you know how all of these uh, places are trying to adjust right now. But that's a great question. I, I don't have a fantastic answer for it. I left it out. Yeah, it, it feels again adjacent. This is an industry that I think defies um, really strict like boxing because there's a lot of yeah. stuff that bleeds over in different ways. Yeah, and I mean there's there are. When you think about it, you, you could go down a path. I mean, I, I think about maybe a, a gym or a fitness place. They've probably got a small okay. retail operation in there, right? You think about a, uh, I don't know, a, a, 
a lot of the whatever the fitness center is, maybe they they sell they also sell tennis rackets or ten, or, or yeah. clothing, you know. So there's there's little subsets of it that you don't really think about uh, in retail and in especially where we are now. How have those little sub uh, retail uh, spots? Okay, so there? last classification question from yeah. your perspective: What about automotive? Automotive like um, AutoZone, those types of places. Oh no, I think that's clearly retail. I mean, like actual like going and purchasing a, an automobile. Ah. See, I did not consider the actual car purchase itself as part of retail, but man, that's one of the bigger retail purchases you're going to make, right? Going to make, yeah. And then I think do they services wonder, like do you classify those one sort of one time every two or three or four or five years in a whole different category, though? That's interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. maybe the, that's a different. Certainly, you have a a higher average customer value, right, yeah. per transaction, right? So then. Yeah, that's hard. Anyway, either way, I don't think it impacts majorly some of the stuff we're going to discuss today. It's a broad ranging space. There are some common patterns, though, in the kinds of things that they ask us to work on. Yeah, I, and I was going to, I wanted to mention too, before we go into those patterns, have you checked out Shopify? Yeah. 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 So the, one, one of the things, Randy, I was thinking about on this was that. I mean, if if you want to, if you or I want to start up a re, guess how long it takes to set up a retail shop in Shopify? Oh, I don't know, less than a day. Nineteen minutes. Nineteen minutes. Nineteen minutes. You can go from not having a store to having an online presence and a store in Shopify. I think uh, the the shoes that I wear, they're um, Allbirds. They're this wool shoe store, and they yeah. do everything through Shopify, like yeah. the, the entire experience. So you can do a low or no code, like e-commerce business these days with tools like Shopify. I think a lot of people don't realize how many web marketplaces they interact with are powered by Shopify. Yeah, they've got, uh, you know, over a half million active businesses, I don't know, 100 plus countries, tons of merchants. The, the, the ability where you don't actually have to have a lot of capital today to spin up, you know, that, that retail space, if you will. Yeah. I just need, let me spend 20 minutes, put a store up and and boom, I can go to town with maybe something I created or, or maybe it's uh, uh, something else that I found that would appeal to people. That, but that you can like generate really quickly too. I, I know people yeah. who have purchased 3D printers and they'll sell either custom design or pre-made stupid thing. I was thinking today, so I've got security cameras uh, and it's been rainy here, which is rare. And the cameras, they have just a little bit of rain on the lens. And I thought, man, how, if I had a 3D printer and then I get to Shopify, I could 3D print these little stupid hoods. Like yeah. just the most basic stupid thing you would never think to do a business on, you know, years ago. But now, I mean, anything is a business. Yeah. Do you feel like in general people enjoy today that process of purchasing? I guess, you know, kind of the physical process of per let me go, let me go look around, let me browse, let me you know, kind of yeah. see what's out there or are people today more concerned about, I just, I want to have something and use it for the purpose that I need versus this experience of actually shopping. I think it depends on what you're getting. Uh, deeply it does. I would say like what draws me to a store, there are environments where I need some level of curation or yeah. advice. All right. And, and if it's a drill bit, like I know I need a drill bit. I just need one that'll work. They're mostly commodities to me and there's unlimited yeah. options. So I might even just go with the cheap one that has good reviews. Bang, done. But if you're looking for a drill instead of a drill bit, 
I don't know. What are the differences? Like, what should I get? And now that's where I rely on like these sites. But if there's not a good option, there's no site or it's a niche kind of thing. Maybe, maybe it's audio stuff. Right. And and that's something I'm looking at right now. It's like, once you get past, just plug it into your computer speakers, there's a whole world and it's just overwhelming to me. So maybe I will go into a custom mom and pop audio store that can walk me through the process. And then I can pay for that experience. Or if I need to get hands on with something like a couch, right. I personally, I'm not going to purchase a couch online unless it's a couch I've had the experience of sitting on. So I'll go to outlet areas. And then, you know, for those experiences where there really is a value and like I have to feel it, I have to touch it. I think, yeah, you've got to go in and do the experience of purchasing. Otherwise, it's just a transaction. Like I just kind of want it to be magic. I don't know. What Do you have a different take on that? No, I think it is very personal. I, I know people that have bought beds, couches, all types of things that you would think I would, I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to feel it. How is this actually comfortable to me? But, you know, and there's companies cropping up all over. I'm thinking of like an avocado mattress, for instance. I don't have one of those. Oh, really? but yeah, they're out there. It's, it's Mattresses are booming right now. The, the e-commerce mattress, like it, there's so many right now and a lot of venture capital is going into them. There must be insane margins on mattresses that I'm not seeing. Or a lot of people with really bad backs or something. Not sure. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I think I think that, that personal aspect of, is it something that I want to experience first and make sure I'm going to like it? But- you know, I mean, look, look what Amazon's doing. I mean, I can, I can literally, I can get it in worst case, probably a couple of days and then I can just return yeah. it very easily. So that's something that I do in person. So our returns from Amazon, we go to Kohl's because Kohl's has like a deal with them where you can return your Amazon purchases at a Kohl's store. Really? And so things where it's just like less effort. I mean, that's hard to say. I think there are, there's a place for experiences. I, I think a hardware shop's probably right for that depending on what you're getting. I, and I've done that with like just piping things or just little weird things around the house. Like, okay, what kind of like caulking should I get? Is there like a special kind of spackling? Uh, but absent that, I think e-commerce is going to dominate for even like groceries. I think more and more we will spend less time going to the grocery store. That That is a good point. During these last six months, we have, we have never ordered groceries online and had them delivered, but we actually did that. And it, it was not a bad experience at all. Uh, from yeah. a local HEB Kroger that's hand delivered to your house. So, you know, again, trying to keep distance and all that, it's it's, it's an option, but do I ultimately convert over to that and go, oh, I don't really need to be there in person. I'm, I'm getting, you know, nice apples, oranges, grapes, whatever they are, and I don't actually have to be there. In they just kind of show up like a utility, yeah. right? Like your water, like your electricity. No, that's interesting. But then that I think that powers more experiences. So like if you're going to go to a cooking class, right, that's hard to administer virtually, when you're going to like use a, a new piece of hardware, right. For your cooking. So yeah, we're, we're expanding a little bit, but I think experiences are going to be a big part of how retail has to adapt in an e-commerce first environment. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, again, there's, there's so many elements to this. You talked about not minding waiting a day or two on a drill bit. I'm, I, I want that right now. There's other, <laughs> you don't mind waiting on that, that, uh, or you want right now that I, I wouldn't mind waiting on vice versa. Yeah. But it's this, I think that's in general, we, you were starting to talk about trends. That's one of those, I don't know if you call it a trend or it's just a mindset change that seems to be going on where, you know, I'm thinking even an older generation than me that traditionally has, you know, maybe an Amazon purchase once a year or something is just going, you know, crazy now, right? With all of the different uh, online purchasing, especially the older generation that, that wants to, you know, kind of maintain that distance. So that, 
basically to me what has happened is the the compression of time on transitioning the mind share and the way we think about purchasing from a retail standpoint and experiencing from a retail standpoint has just been compressed tremendously. Yeah. I mean, what I didn't want to do or what I'd never done, now I've done it probably multiple times and it, it may be just part of my routine now. That's a big so, challenge for the physical locations, right? When I think about that transition of physical locations, there's a shirt company, or they do clothes, or I think it's not just men's clothing, but it's Bonobos, uh, owned by Walmart. And their model is they have physical stores, but you can't purchase clothes from there. You go in there for the experience of trying on the different sizes and fits, and then they help you make a purchase online. Or then you think of Tesla, right? Who's turning that model kind of slightly, you go in and you can test track cars, but you don't purchase a car from them. You go online and then purchase the car there. And then even like something like Carvana, uh, my sister purchased a car. They literally, it's not a joke, they have a car, like convenience, like automation machine. Like you go in, you, you pay, buy it, and they pull it out of a machine that's multiple stories high. An E1, <laughs> that, you know, black no, truck. No, exactly. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> that's the experience. So yeah. uh, it, it's more automation, more self. I think in an environment where you have much more freedom of information as opposed to like, 70s or 80s like if you don't know about cars you can't just go google it right you kind of have to rely on this person's info but now there's reviews there's like long-term testing and you can make your own decision yeah it's interesting that you bring that up because you mentioned a while ago going in and, and really getting someone to take you through something i mean there's so much information now available online that you you know the research you're probably going to be much more informed even than that person is in the store talking about that you know, 55 inch TV or, or whatever you're looking to do. You also yeah. mentioned uh, Bonobo. I'm a huge Bonobos fan, by the way. But really? I you had, had already heard of that? Yeah. I have no idea that they had in-person stores you go in. I have yeah. everything I've done with them has been online. They ship it out to me. I bought, I probably bought three or four pairs of pants from them and yeah. they ship it out to me. And um, if I need to get them altered, I just take them to the local tailor and good to go from there. But I, I didn't even know they had a uh, an, a physical presence. Yeah, they, they have physical presence. They use the website. They told me about it in the store. They use the website to identify hot spots of purchasing because they, you know, they have to deliver it. Yeah. And they'll put those stores there to help you know bring people in. And then they do events. I mean, they're constantly inviting us out for – well, I mean, not now. But before COVID, they do like barbecues out there. Or they yeah. do some kind of new release events. And yeah, it's, it's a different – approach whereas like conventional clothing store you think of it's like they have clothes i go buy clothes where this is like an experience or multiple events that are driven towards like making a purchase decision absolutely so i i think i interrupted you a while ago what what are you seeing we talked about a few things but from a a trending perspective what are you seeing patterns trends those types of things right now uh from yeah. retail customers that we're talking to so I think the space that I personally have been most involved with is the digital marketing space. Yeah. Just the ability to make better spend decisions about your paid advertising, your pay-per-click, paid search, those kind of things. And then that folds into a customer 360 model where retail, they do a lot more advanced than just, I want you to click on my website. They have a better understanding of who a person is, uh, recommendation models come in, understanding what they purchased in the past and their kind of spending behavior, cohort analysis. So those are the two big ones. And then those all roll into like, what's the actual output? They come to us asking for faster dashboards, fresher data, right? They don't want to wait two weeks for the data to refresh. Yeah. And they want more automation. 
maybe you you do have a full process right now that gets you you know the latest week sales but if it takes you a lot of like moving around an excel sheets or you know analyzing with other like supply chain sources to come up with your report that's not particularly useful so the automation component is really really heavy in the mind in our retail consumers yeah i agree i mean those are those are great uh, patterns i think that you know, even even somebody like Amazon, probably the most dominant retailer right now, you think of them totally online, but I mean, they bought Whole Foods, right? So they've got this balance yeah. on, I've got this physical presence, I've got this online presence, I can buy 365 products, Whole Foods 365 products online, I can get to them in store. How do I balance that in-person and digital experience out? You know, that's, that's something that I think everybody's trying to weigh that has both. I totally agree with the digital marketing side. How can I make that digital marketing more effective? Really, you know, can I pay five cents per conversion versus 20? Maybe I want to pay 20. Maybe I'm paying 70 and should be, pay- you know, all those kind of things go at yeah. the scale that some of these companies are having to do digital marketing to capture that mindshare. It is, uh, it can be exceptionally expensive if it's not done right. The other thing too, I was thinking about is there is so much price transparency now. You go into, yeah. you know, I'll go into a Home Depot or a Lowe's. I've got my uh, my smartphone with me, right? So you, you scan the barcode, yeah, man. yeah. You, you just look look it up. Like, oh, okay, well, this is like twenty bucks cheaper I, somewhere else. I'm looking at this uh, Dewalt drill. Let me. Oh, maybe right across the street at Lowe's, or maybe on Amazon, I can get it for twenty or thirty or forty dollars less if it's an item I don't need today, right now, this minute. Yeah, so that. You know, this price transparency, all the competition coming in, the, you know, this omni-channel, digital, physical, all those kind of things are, are really weighing, I think, on uh, the decision-making that we're using data for more and more and more in the retail space. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the, the other thing, too, that I was uh, I was considering is, you know, how do you... I think the thing that we all hate uh, when you you get a you know you get a customer service person online doesn't doesn't matter the industry retail or you know yeah consumer whatever is tell me information that you should already know you know like why am I not why am I not personalized I just put in my you know my SSN or my account number something that you should have some level of be able of to pull it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you get you get hung up on. That's always the worst, right? Like you're calling customer support, they they lose your call. Yeah. Um, that that personalization element is really important. It's a data challenge as well. Yeah. So if you can bring that in, and then you can have good customer experiences, have great ways to measure that. The KPI around a customer experience. What does that look like, right? What does engagement truly look like? And how do you attribute some level of monetary value to that? Because once you do that, then questions of like, okay, how much should I be spending per keyword? Yeah. It's simple math, right? We know the average customer lifetime value. You know your conversion rates. You just match that up so that you have some level of margin. You're good to go. And I find that a lot in the retail space. There's either an over or underestimation of, there's like a mismatch of, I think I should spend this, but it's like, actually this specific keyword, it's highly competitive. If you transition to this other combination of keywords that is much more niche that you're really well suited to fill, up your spend on there because those conversions are a lot higher and then your cost benefit is really easy. These are simple data questions, right? If you have the data in the right spot in a way that's really easy to consume and give the proper experience, sometimes it's a dashboard, sometimes it's it's a report, right? That's a little more filtered. If you can get that information in front of the SMEs, they will make the decision. It does not take a rocket scientist. The challenge is data. It's siloed. There are different 
ad platforms. There are different parts of your business, different, the attribution process only goes up to the point of a click. It doesn't actually go towards your costs or your profit. And if you can reconcile that, you can be much more strategic with your digital marketing strategy. Oh, I agree. I think you, you hit on a number of great points here. You talked about, you know, the, the the speed aspect. You talk about the silos that we're all dealing with. And I think if you if you say, how can I how can I best personalize to get the most value out of, you know, whether it be digital marketing or just providing a better customer experience as a retailer? I mean, I've got to be able to move fast today. I mean, that is to me, yep. if I'm if I'm the data that I'm collecting, the data that I'm, you know, having to transform or enrich, you talked about the silos. Am I enriching that with the right data from those other places within my organization and processing that in a way that gives me the velocity and that speed to decision making? Sometimes uh, you know, with an online retailer, or or it could even be, you know, a physical place as well. I should have been presented with something maybe more proactively that I, I walked out the door. I, I couldn't find what I needed. I wasn't uh, you know, directed in the right way, either digitally or physically. You have a limited period of time now. Our, our, <laughs> the way we think is fast. You move fast. Yeah. If you don't move fast, you're going to lose those consumers, those buyers. And I think that how we interact and how retailers interact, that's all really factoring into it right now. And uh, yeah, so some great points that you made and help again, let me predict even even more so not just react to you know a consumer asking for something but you know present me with something that i might want to buy right absolutely yeah if you can if you can identify even a day or two early certain crunches in supply that are going to occur you can you can address those and then capture that revenue that would otherwise be lost to you yeah i mean there's all kind of use case and i think the average consumer would probably be kind of rather surprised to see how much data collection happens, even in what you would consider to be maybe not tech first, you know, brick and mortar stores. I, I don't think that I mind more data collection as a consumer. If, okay. you, if, if you will make my experience with you better as a, like, yeah. don't collect data just to collect data. We've all done that over the years, right? Let's just collect it sure. all. If mm -hmm. you collect it, then you better make my experience better as a retail customer of yours. Otherwise, why should I give you that data, right? This data collection question is a really hot one right now yeah. in the space, not just from like a consumer preferences perspective, but from a compliance perspective. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Retail, we like to ask this about our industries. Is retail booming or busting during COVID? That's a great question. <laughs> you look at the numbers. So... If you go back to pre-COVID, let's go to 2019, there were 17 major retailers that filed for bankruptcy. And in 2019, so pre-COVID, so you had companies that you know we probably all have, have known and heard of over the years, Payless, Gymboree, those types of companies. Oh, so, really? I didn't you, know Payless was going Yeah, on. yeah. And, and some of these companies, it was their second time to file. So they had filed... Oh reorged once, come back out, and then gone back in to, to bankruptcy. I have never understood. How can you – so what? You create an LLC and you can do whatever the heck you want? Who gives you credit? Like how, do you, how can you operate as a business, especially after you've that, declared that, bankruptcy That's once? part of the deal. Generally, they still have quite a bit of – there's quite a mountain of debt typically on these. And so the, the hope is that they can turn it around, You know, start reducing that debt load. But it, it's just tough. And, and again, now – like you said, you had COVID hit on top of that, on top of an already really tough retail environment at the end very of 2019. Yeah, yeah, very highly competitive. Now you have COVID hit. 
So to give you some comparison, last year, 19, or sorry, 17 major retailers filed, this year, 26. So the number's not, we're, we're sitting in September. It's not- Yeah, it's not what you would think. It's, it's, it's based not, on the, yeah. the cultural impact of COVID. It, it, exactly. But again, some really, really big brands. So companies like JCPenney, you know, 100-year-old company. Yeah. But if you, if you look behind the scenes, you know, top line sales declining way before COVID for multiple years, no positive net income since a decade. Literally no net income since no 20, 2010. Wait, wait, wait. Exactly. Really? Zero net profit since 20, 10 years, right? So COVID maybe well. accelerated that last leap, but I mean, there were some, there were a lot of, uh, of holes uh, that, that needed to be patched. Now that's for large companies. I think there's a certain level of like, okay, we're going to shake the dead weight, but I think there's not captured in those or, or the millions of small, I don't know if it's millions, but certainly thousands oh, of smaller businesses, yeah. right? That rely on that foot traffic on the impulse purchase, right? Or even they, maybe they had a reliable stream of people who just stopped coming. I, I don't know a local barbershop. Per, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know their finances, but I imagine they didn't save up six months of like rent with no foot traffic, right? That's tough. Yeah, most of those are right. They're operating on very thin margins. They depend on that cash flow months a month. They've got rent that's due. Uh, some of these, some of these uh, retail retailers are in very high rent areas as well. Whether you're smaller or a large one, yeah. You, know, you look at a company like Sur La Tab. I don't know if you've ever you, because you talked about yeah, earlier. taking classes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Classes there. You, you yeah. mentioned earlier the cooking classes. Well, they exactly. you know, in order to do that. I've got to put a bunch of capital equipment in those stores, right? I got to have the big and oven. They declared bankruptcy, didn't they? They did. Yeah. So, yeah, but too. again, pre-COVID, three CEOs since 2017. You know, a lot of just a lot of shifting around, and and again, a company had been around for you know 40 years or so, a long, long time, but in very yeah. high, generally in very high rent shopping centers. Oh, the, the most luxurious places, right? It's yeah. Texas is where I saw them. Yeah. And actually you mentioned the cooking class. So my wife and I did, did several date nights where we did cooking class. I mean, we, I loved it. You know, we did, uh, yeah. in fact, we did, uh, we learned how to make pasta, homemade pasta. Well, so did we, that's yeah, how we yeah. bought a pasta maker. We did too. too. So okay. it, it built. <laughs> I got to ask you how many times have you done pasta since the class? So probably immediately after the class, we would do it once every couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, we would good. do it. But then we cut out carbs. Oh, and so yeah. since then, yeah. it's really hard to justify. Now it's really just for big occasions, right? If we yeah. have people over or whatever. But yeah, you're right. We don't, we don't use we don't use it the way we thought. Oh, Hell yeah! Every I, night we're gonna have pasta. I gotta pasta. be honest. I think we did the exact same thing. Got the manual pasta maker and uh, you know yep. the the, the old school <laughs> silver one, the crank. Ta -ta -ta -ta. And we yep. did maybe the next week. Yeah, let's make pasta and everything. And then I don't know that we've broken that thing out since then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting, I, getting, uh, getting uh, to the side. But no, oh, they seem like yeah. the kind of place that's really equipped to make a, a a deft transition of their retail space from we have things you will buy to we have experiences that yeah. you cannot you cannot get on Amazon. You will not get that cooking class. You won't get the full experience, right? And then for them to, I mean, absent of COVID, for them to still be struggling, mm. 
that's really interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, if they can't figure it out and they have, you know, they have the brand recognition, they're known for yep. quality, they're known for these, you know, high-end experiences. Yeah. Gosh, maybe it's harder than I thought. Because yeah. to me, it's like, we'll just transition and like start doing Groupons and like yeah. start doing like these kind of events. I don't know. One more, I'll give you one more example from this year. So Taylor Brands, they own, uh, it's Men's Warehouse, Joseph A. Bank, those, those types. Yep. I've been a Joseph A. Bank customer for many, many years. Uh, so these guys have been around a long, long time. Again, revenues, top line revenue declining the last couple of years, way, way before COVID. And then obviously a huge hit. One of the things that they said was the pre-COVID when everybody was in the office, but there was a, what they termed, what uh, Taylor Brands termed a casualization of the American office. In other words, not everybody's oh, wearing, yeah, not everybody's suits, wearing yeah. suits and everything. And so yeah. I do my khakis or my, my slack shirt and everything. So that took a big piece out of, out of their pie. And then obviously just, um, and I'm just, I'm trying to think I've done more in the last five years online, uh, Joseph bank than anything else, but certainly this year, since, since March, I don't think I've bought a stitch of, of, Call it not a stick to work clothing, not one, nothing, no, because no. there's no purpose. You know, I've got no. the same ones I've been doing, they don't get the same wear. Um, I, I think I dress more more formally than the typical work at home person because mentally, like, I have to put something on with a collar or I don't really get anything done. No. And even so, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't get the same brand. And I've saved, I think I've probably saved kind of a, a bunch of money on that too. And then I think, you know, working from home now that other, you know, clients. My company has always been cool with me working from home. It's really the clients that have driven me to go to an office or talk to someone. Yeah. Now that they've changed their culture a little bit through COVID, maybe that's something we kind of leave behind is like an old way of doing things. Yeah, that, that would be nice. You, you've got, so you've got those examples, Randy, but then you look at, say, grocery. What has happened is we haven't been going out to restaurants or we are cooking no. at home where you see people baking bread and doing all this kind of stuff. So that's, uh, that individual sector within retail, your Kroger, your Costco's, HEB's, Tesco's over in the UK, those kind of things, they they seem to be doing really, really well. So it's, again, it just depends. I think that, you know, where, wherever you are, what, whatever part of retail you're in today, more than ever, you, you know, head in the sand is, it's, you know, that's just not going to work. You're, you're going, yeah. if hopefully you've been adapting already um, there's a guy that I, I, I watch and follow, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, and, and he had transitioned a number of years ago. He, he grew up in the, in the wine business. Uh, his, his dad owned a little wine shop in, in New Jersey, yeah. about a $3 million business. He, he took it and really got it into the, call it the internet age, maybe uh, a number of years ago, grew up to about $60 million, but it was not done with physical people walking into the store. It was done yeah. online. It was done through, you know, some really creative YouTube videos, all those kind of things. And again, I think that, you know, whether you're big on the physical presence side or you're only e-commerce, I think content, don't get stuck, right? I think the, the clients that are doing really well are not just stuck in one mode. They're continuing to innovate. They're continuing to think about ways that, you know, how can I use the data that I have to innovate and improve operations, offerings, and, and ultimately, Customer, I'm going to come back to it over and over. It is about customer yep. experience. You make Absolutely. you make my life better, my experience better as a retailer. You are going to get my business. If you're if you're selling products that don't have some core moat, right, yeah. some IP or some something that no one else can do, you will be copied 100. Yeah. percent So you need to rely on that brand, that trustworthiness, that experience. If you want that repeat business, if you want to be known as the leader in this space. Because otherwise, you're going to do bottom of the barrel competition for whoever's got the cheapest thing on Amazon. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, let, let's, uh, let's transition over. Um, you look at retail engagements, you look at the, some of the differences or similarities, both between other types of industries. What are you seeing out there when we talk to retailers and get into an engagement with them around specific needs that they have? Yeah. You know, I think one of the top things at the beginning of every discussion is some element of security and data privacy kind of compliance. So I'm talking GDPR and then the California kind of equivalent uh, CCPA. So how do we make sure that the data we're collecting, which helps us power the experience, helps us power the digital marketing, is in compliance with these laws that have kind of a lot of teeth where being out of compliance, that is a cost. So it's worth investing money into ensuring that if someone makes a request to purge their data, both from your system, but also from the aggregations you've built, you can do that reliably. And it's not this massive process that results in potentially missed areas. So that means there's a lot of automation play as well. I would say that's the biggest one that differentiates it from some other industries. In addition, I would say more than some industries, I see more real-time applications be applicable. You really want to get someone right when they're walking in or walking out or when you get some information about them or even fraud detection. That's what I'm always really interested in the fraud use case. So if someone like merchandise loss is a non-negligible component of a massive, massive company, right? Someone like Walmart without, you know, specifics or anything, a company like Walmart loses more in just fraudulent merchandise than some other companies have in total revenue. Right. And if you can capture a percentage or two of that in real time analytics that can identify what's happening or video analytics or some other mechanism to identify like these schemes, right, where people might return something twice. And if your system isn't integrated enough to understand like, okay, this device has been returned, this person is scamming us for cash. That can be a challenge. So I would say those are the, the the two big things that differentiate it from other industries. Outside of that, it's a lot of the same kind of stuff. I want those dashboards to be faster. I want data to be fresher. I'll say retail typically is also not afraid to use more cutting edge technology. Mm. Uh, I think it's because they typically have their finger on the pulse of how tech, I mean, these days, they know how tech impacts their actual business. Whereas some other industries that are older, they may see the IT department as being separate and apart from their actual, the business, right? And I hear that yeah. so many times where in retail, it feels like that's more integrated. So they're not they're not that concerned about spending a little more money for a better mousetrap in the cloud because they know that'll have an impact on their business. So those are the three kind of defining features I would say from my experience, separate a retail customer from someone in mining or manufacturing or, you know, some other industry. Yeah, those make a lot of sense. And and you talked about earlier the the challenge in in retail, especially some of the more traditional ones where you've got, you know, this this these hidden data silos. And I I think that that particular need, if I've got, you know, maybe some legacy systems, how do I? And you talked about cost earlier too. How can I? How can I move to the cloud in a cost-effective, yeah. cost-efficient way, hopefully getting a lot more value than what I'm getting today out of maybe we've, we deal with retailers that have, you know, a Teradata, a lot of Teradata out there and Tiza, those types of appliances. You know, how yeah. can I reduce my cost footprint, reduce my, you know, everything around that cost equation and the lack of being able to be more fluid around what I deliver and increase that in the cloud with regard to cost monitoring and doing it cheaper, doing it faster, but ultimately, again, going back to giving my customers a better overall experience through the data that's there now, hopefully with some of those silos broken down. 
And you talked about earlier some of the different sources, some of the digital marketing and all that. I think that's another area. You look at the needs on the retail side. There are there are sources coming from all angles right now. I mean, it's it's yeah. cloud-based sources, it's it's on-prem sources. So how do I get those into one spot to to get to that customer 360, that single view, whatever you want to call it, that ultimately helps me action that data uh, much better. And then I, I would totally agree with you. Well, I think the, as well, the security side, that that governance, lineage, provenance, security across the board for retailers is, is really critical. And I mean, that kind of thing has to be continually fed and, and cared for. You, you cannot yeah. take it for granted or you're going to end up with a really big situation on your hands. So yeah, I think you know some of the some of the things that are specific to retail. Certainly, they cut across other industries, but retail maybe has them. You know, they're they're even more in a spotlight in retail. Yeah, so that I think that leads into some use cases, right? Like, what are they actually trying to do apart from just the the kind of needs they have? I wanted to ask you about customer three hundred and sixty. Uh, this is a term I hear a lot in any any B two C environment. If you're working with an end customer, single person who will make a purchase decision, and that's who you're optimizing your strategy around, I hear the term customer 360. What do you think of when you hear customer 360? I think of give me a single view that allows me to take into account merchandising, marketing, advertising, basically any and all dimensions of that customer where I can action that and quickly make decisions or personalize or provide offers to. Again, when you talk about the data silos, that single view can be a bit elusive, right? I mean, that has to be planned out. It's not a snap your fingers type thing. But if, if you sum up what retailers have been trying to get to, some of them have achieved, some of them are, are still kind of struggling with. I, and I, again, look, even Amazon, they do not have it perfect. I get presented with stuff. I'm going, what the heck? Where, who do you think I am here? Why are you presenting me with that, Amazon? This is personalization? Yeah. No, this is not. It's not easy, even for somebody like Amazon, right? So yeah. to me, those I think about this multidimensional uh, kind of cube almost that that encapsulates my experience and and how I interact with that particular merchant. What, what do you think? Because I think this is a, a really key use case. Yeah, no, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. In a weird way, I've always thought of it as a thumbprint. This thumbprint, digital kind of identification of a person that gives you different avenues for value. I don't want to say value extraction. That sounds very predatory. But value proposition, right? Because in I think in a proper economy of retail, you are making money because you've delivered a service or good of some kind to a person, right? And it's a win-win thing. It's perfect capitalism, right? Uh, benefiting on both sides. So one way to say is that, yeah, value extraction of a, a customer using data to identify your next strategy, your next steps. But the other way is how do I deliver valuable things to them, especially in an environment where they're inundated with options. Yeah. It is, they're drowning. They, they have that that decision fatigue or decision paralysis, right? Yeah. I experienced that a lot. So how can you cut through the noise and get straight to what they actually need so that you can make an exchange, right? Have some retail transaction. When I hear customer 360, I'm thinking about understanding what they've done, what they will do, what cohorts kind of align, what you as a business who are making decisions about this year, next year, the year after should be able to learn from these customer 360 profiles. Are there trends that you could take advantage of or you can identify early, even a little earlier than your competitors that will allow you to have a business edge? 
So in customer 360, I'm thinking about delivering coupons or meaningful personalized messaging yeah. uh, in mass marketing uh, capacities of uh, targeting your advertising so that you're getting them the most meaningful information. Those are the kind of things I think about in a customer 360 use case, uh, but it can yeah. be wide variant. Usually when we're working with someone, they have a really specific problem that's driving the need to do this, but they have longer term goals. Um, the really common one is they want to have some machine learning, right? That's going to apply more targeted, you know, recommendations more than what they're doing today with just, you know, basic heuristics type stuff that requires a data platform, right? That requires a basis for where you're going to store your data in a centralized way, make it accessible. And there's some low hanging fruit of value you can get along the way, but it's not a, I'm going to hire some data scientists today and I'll have it overnight type of scenario. This is a long-term data maturity problem. Yeah, it is. And I was thinking as you were talking that we, uh, when we have sat down with retailers to go through, we've talked about this before on the show, but we do a use case enablement workshop and, you know, kind of yeah. align value with risk and where does it fall? Is it in that upper right where it's a high value, low risk type thing? Over and over with retailers, what ends up happening when they talk about the, the needs that they have around use cases is call it customer 360, single view, consolidated view, whatever you want to call it, that always is one of the top one, two, or three in that upper right. Now, I feel like there is risk associated with it, so it's not high yeah. upper right, but it's always in that upper right quadrant. Uh, and, and again, there's, you know, it could be 12 or 15 use cases, but that one always stands out. Everybody's struggling with it still, even in 2020. And I think it's an area that a lot of the, the solutions and a lot of the capabilities that the cloud brings to the table can help address. Yeah, and while you're approaching those, you know, semi-higher risk challenges, usually you can use that as a target where there's a bunch of other, you know, kind of spin-off value that can occur along the way. So the things you have to do to get there, there are value capture mechanisms through automation specifically, I think of, or data quality, for example, or compliance that, okay, say you don't hit it exactly, you still are walking away with a ton more value than you had before. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, you, other use cases is, as I'm looking back on some of those workshops that we did, you know, you look at demand signal analysis, we talked about some of the, you know, how do I pick up cues and how do I optimize on the digital marketing side, you know, really listen properly to what's going on uh, on the social side of things, yeah. things like basket analysis, clickstream analysis, recommendations, predictions, price optimizations, uh, you know, then you get into supply chain inventory, right? How do I match yeah. that demand with the inventory that I have on hand, whether it be an e-commerce retailer that does have warehouses, right? They still have to ship from somewhere generally, uh, or yeah. in-person uh, inventory in a store. I mean, there are a, a, just a multitude of possible use cases, depending on the size, scale, and scope of the retailer to, to really pursue. Man, inventory management, both from the supply chain side and just also on like the distribution side, it, it is ripe yeah. with data and there's no perfect algorithm. Some of these problems are just not solvable algorithmically. So it's all about delivering the right data to the SME who can make an informed decision, who have years of experience in this space and allowing them not to spend all their time just reconciling Excel reports or uh, rerunning you know, manual processes. They can just focus straight on answering the questions they have to, to more effectively distribute goods to the locations where those need to go. Yeah. And it's, it's a multidimensional problem. You have that distribution or logistics aspect, but 
I've actually got to purchase some stuff. Maybe it's uh, some raw materials or maybe it's the actual inventory. I got to make sure that that purchasing is aligned to the demand and aligned to the supply chain and logistics. I mean, it is a, it's a complex problem. And, and again, you're, you're not going to get very far unless you're using data in a really intelligent way. In fact, I guess you'll get, you'll get down the road, but you're going to waste a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So next customer 360, that's a huge one. I, I'd yeah. say that's definitely the, like the major one, but some other spaces that, uh, you know, I think other industries are interested in, but particularly now with data privacy laws becoming more and more of a concern, I see data governance and audit automation mm. being something that people ask us for. How do I ensure verifiably that no one has accessed data inappropriately or that people who've requested data be purged actually had their requests met? Uh, where before that might be a manual process that's prone to error or introducing bugs downstream in your processing. If you can implement better practices or more DevOps, more automation, that can be a click of a button, right? It can be a change of a config file and then you're good to go. That saves a ton of time. Audit itself as a space, I love going into audit scenarios because usually the rules are pretty well clear, defined. They know what they're looking for. It's just a pain every quarter to put it together. So that's going to be one of the use cases. Digital marketing as well. And then, you know, the warehouse application migration, right, that you've talked about, those appliances yeah. uh, that we've been working with. How do we get those into a cloud environment so that we can scale without having to stop and migrate every few years? Yeah, going back real quick on that data governance and audit. I mean, that's not one of your, uh, you know, top sexy applications, if you will, but it is a must have. It's it's a, yep. you have to do that, right? So it's, it's a necessary thing that you just got to get done. I totally agree on the digital marketing. The warehouse appliance migration modernization is a really interesting one too, because, you know, Teradata and some of the other appliances have done a, Teradata specifically in retail has done a fantastic job over the years. There are tons of Teradata appliances uh, scattered across the world but they are really expensive. And when you start yeah. looking at the margins that most of these retailers are operating under, uh, you know, okay, let's go spend another million or two or three. I better be getting tremendous value out of that appliance and I better not be able to replace it with something else at a much lower cost, maybe not without that capital expenditure that I have to do that I can pay on a consumption-based uh, model in the cloud, right? So I think yeah. that, Teradata, even in the retail space, probably is under quite a bit of pressure right now with the margin crunch that all these retailers are under. Agree. Absolutely. So moving into kind of the last section here, I, I think we covered retail really well. We've given a picture of what retail is to us, what kind of patterns they're asking for, what kind of needs they have. I wanted to move into a lightning round section. Love like it. We do sometimes. Love yeah. It. Okay. So I um, actually grabbed some of these questions from a new site around icebreakers because I realized our lightning round questions are kind of like icebreakers. So I found a site that has those and that's where I pulled these from. Okay. So uh, totally new questions. First, Kelly, what is the hardest part about working virtually for you and what is the easiest? So I think the hardest part for me is setting a definitive cutoff time at the end of end of the day. Really? Yeah, it okay. just it just tends to everything kind of uh, uh, blends together, if you will. I'd say that's that's tough. I try to do I try to do it actually with exercise. So my my tip okay. is maybe schedule exercise at the end of the day that can be a a breaking point. You can come back and revisit, obviously, but but have a breaking point there. For me, that's that's really tough. Uh, easiest is. I don't. I don't have to get on any uh, airplanes right now. So I, I am. I, I am loving that, man. Uh, what what uh, about you? Hardest part working virtually and the yeah. easiest. Hardest part, I would say, is for folks, especially now, folks who are not typically used to like they're not really Slack first 
folks. Um, that can be hard where everything they want everything to be a phone call. And it's, well, could you just answer the question? That'd be great. Or can, can we just talk about this? So that's a little challenge. Communication, I guess, is the way I would put that. Not yeah. no one's fault. Just yeah. um, picking up the phone more often than I, I used to have to do, or, or you know, lack of in-person things to like sort out big problems that can be challenging. And then the easiest, um, definitely the freedom. I've always said that like no one's checking to see if you get in at a specific time. Now the, the other side of the sword on that is like you said, like you might dang at seven o'clock. I gotta, I really gotta stop right now. Yeah. But, um, those are the two sides. Okay. So next question, Cal, I'm really interested in this. Do you have any weird or interesting talents? You're throwing some real curveballs at me today. I was uh, so I mentioned um, I mentioned that this uh, beer that I enjoyed it is gone now, but this uh, Moonwalk from Real Ale Brewing in Blanco. So I went to high school in in uh, Franklin. I hadn't thought about it, and I didn't see these questions ahead of time. So I, I was thinking yeah. about this as you as you brought it up. Went to uh, small school. One of the things that everybody did was you're in in ag. Uh, agriculture class, right? Okay. And, and one of the things that we did was you you go through and, and just kind of, you know, just, uh, you know, judge animal, you know, this this cow, this horse, the sheep, you know, whatever it is, is, uh, you know, how it's structured and all that kind of thing. It's it's the ideal thing. And, and I had really never done it before. And uh, I remember getting, I got, I got second place at a cattle judging contest. And it was, it was the craziest thing because I had literally no prior uh knowledge of it really but maybe just you mentioned weird or interesting talent maybe i have an eye for cows they, I, I like beef i know i like beef i like steak so hold on that looks pretty tasty that's a that's a six <laughs> that was the only thing that came to mind man what about you weird or interesting talent yeah so i actually do i have a ringer for this question okay. that i usually pull out um i i don't know why but i am good to go with the spiciest foods in the world the spiciest peppers Hold in the on. world. Ghost. I've had them all. Ghost. Ghost is nothing. What? Carolina Reaper, Trinidad Scorpion. Yeah, I've had ordered online. It was do, a thing. Do um, you start sweating or anything or nothing? Not no response. I don't turn red. Oh out my anything, man! Gosh. I don't even feel it. I, okay, so the hottest ones, the very hottest, my mouth goes numb, but I don't feel a heat. I don't feel anything. What's so, the uh, What's the hottest one you've ever had? I think technically the Carolina Reaper at the time. I don't know. Um, you're yeah, you're in a whole other category. I've never even heard of this thing. Carolina Reaper. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to hit some statistical level of like Scoville units. Yeah. These are the units yeah. of spice, right? You have to hit that before they classify it as the hottest. So ghost chili, uh, oh. the ghost pepper is no, it is not the hottest pepper in the world. And people like, they spend their whole careers building the hottest pepper. Oh you my God. Man, I'll snack on habaneros. I got no oh, problem. Oh my gosh. Wow, yeah. that is crazy. Yeah, why well, I, I have to? Okay. See, you'll have to show me that sometime. I, I got to see that you Easy. actually do not break out in a sweat or anything. So, so one of the the pizza places I worked at, um, the, my manager there, he was always into like the craziest. He was always up to something, yeah. right? And he found out about this, and we chatted about it. And it was his mission to find something that would be spicy. And yeah. he ordered these special African candies, like from Africa online that were incredibly hot oh. and we, it was stupid but we pulled this prank on another driver where hey man i got these special candy you want to try one and i pop one in and i'm fine yeah and he has it and he spits it out almost immediately and it's hot and he's like <laughs> walking like we should not have done that's not a thing you should do to someone unsuspecting <laughs> but yeah no it's oh, okay next what was your first car so I so I started driving. We lived way way out. So I actually believe it or not. So what little little aside, I got a hardship license at fourteen. 
I was driving okay. at 14, 14 anywhere un, unescorted by myself officially. I mean, okay. le legally, I should say legally. And uh, <laughs> I was driving around. It was, it really was not, but that's, that's kind of my memory is, is starting uh, driving at 14 on the road legally uh, Ford truck, uh, black and cream colored Ford truck. I did not, that was not my, you know, Hey, Here's your here's your truck. It was not like that, but that's the first thing I really drove. That was at 14 years old. What about you? Well, I think I did some not super legal driving uh -oh. um, of a of a Jeep Wrangler, an old old one. But my first like I owned it, yeah. purchased it yeah. car was a Toyota Solara, um, a '99, and that is uh, it's basically a two door Camry. If you've heard of yeah, those, yeah. I don't think they even make the Solara anymore, but yeah. wonderful car. I drove that thing to close to 400,000 miles and then I gave it to my sister in college. So that was her first car as well. So we both had the same first car. Same engine on the 400,000 miles? Did you have to change oh, yeah. it? Yeah. So, so I redid the suspension yeah. um, at some point, right? So uh, I, I redid the the springs and then, you know, I forgot. All, it was all YouTube. I didn't know what I was really doing, yeah. but like, I'll go buy the stuff and do it. Um, but yeah, same engine. Yeah. Same internal, really everything. Oh man, that's awesome. That's a great testimony to, to Toyota for sure. Oh yeah, man. They make yeah. some, they go the distance. Yeah. And I would still probably drive that car yeah. if we hadn't switched to electric. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Hey, let me, All right, so yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say next question. What was your least favorite food as a child? And do you still hate it now? <laughs> that's really an easy one. I, again, I don't even have to really think about that. So uh, my mom used to feed us liver. Liver, liver, man, liver and onions. It was disgusting. I cannot really? stand liver. It's, what is liver taste? It sounds oh, like it tastes very. It's just you know, it's obviously an organ meat, and and uh, it's just yeah. really dark. Really, it's a uh, iron kind of thing. And yeah. I remember so, if she served liver with anything that I could potentially hide the liver in, like a baked potato, I'd try to scoop it in there and and just sort of get away with it. But man, that these again, this was back in the day. Hey, you clean your plate. And uh, so I, I ate a lot of, and the crazy thing is she would fix my dad something else. He never had to eat liver. Yeah. He could eat something no. else. Oh, I had oh, to eat the, the liver. Yeah, liver. the kids were eating the liver and, and uh -huh. dad's uh -huh. over there with some nice fried chicken or something. So uh, oh, anyway, no, that's, if that's, if that's the, uh, the worst thing that my mom did, that, that's fantastic. She's a great mother, but man, I, I still kind of hold it against her today for feeding me liver and have it's not liver. touched it since I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> have not touched it. What about you? Any any uh, least favorite foods that uh, you don't you don't really even like today? Yeah, so my dad wasn't an awesome cook, to be honest. Um, I honestly, my mom wasn't a good cook either. Yeah. Really, it was moving in with um, my wife now, where I really started to experience some great cooking. But um, I think the thing that stays with me is like just being gross. That almost makes me like kind of gag a little bit. You ever hear of goulash? Oh yeah, yeah. Which I think has a formal definition somewhere, but. In, in the household I was in, goulash is just whatever you had cans of mixed with noodles. And the big thing I remember is these massive, like size of your fist steamed tomatoes. So gross, man. I mean, just the nasty corn, corn, steamed tomatoes, red bean, like in, with the thickest skin, man. And then these like macaroni noodles almost. And then hamburger, right? Yeah. Disgust. And I swear we had that once a week. Like just, are you kidding? We're having goulash yeah. again, bud? Yeah. No. So, uh, that would be my answer is this gosh dang goulash. And I won't have anything, even if it's a different food. 
I won't have anything resembling goulash these days. <laughs> yeah, I think I think again, no matter where you grew up or, or what you did, there's there's probably something you go, man. I I really wish my my mom or dad or whoever my caretaker was was they could have chosen something else. It was a little <laughs> more appealing. I would have taken any. I would have yeah. taken plain rice over that, man. <laughs> okay, so last question: um, What is your favorite item that you bought this year? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I don't buy a lot of things. I'm trying to think what, uh, why don't you give yours? I, I got to think about that for I'll a minute. Yeah, yeah. So you, we mentioned drills a lot in yeah. this call. I've got to say, and maybe it's just the timing. This drill I got from a wire cutter recommendation. It's, um, gosh, you know, I don't even, it's, I think it's DeWalt is the brand. Yeah, that's a good brand. But now it's ergonomic. It's got this short top, so it doesn't like lean forward. I have done so many projects. Um, yesterday, I changed my sister's um, license plate. Her bolts had rusted on. She couldn't figure it out. I didn't even have to. It's not even an impact drill. I just put it on drill, popped it in. I looked like a superhero. Zoo, zoo, and then <laughs> popped in the new uh, license plate. Zoo, zoo, uh, done. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I hung our um, our security lights in the yeah. house. I, I placed um, uh, a power strip to my sit stand desk so that the cords didn't keep like getting strained on yeah. the, the connection to the floor. I, I have been a superhero with this drill and I, I swear it's given me confidence to do other kind of projects. So like spackling, I've gotten better at sanding painting. I'm just becoming more of this outdoorsman yeah. all because of this silly little drill. And I bought it maybe two or three weeks ago. So it, I mean, it's a big thing to say it's one the year, but, yeah. Right. It's the first thing I reach for every little project. I go straight for. Oh, I drilled in. We we've had this couch since you know the last holiday season. Yeah. We bought a new couch for ourselves, and it came with feet for the couch, but it wasn't part of a kit. Like there weren't pre-drilled holes. It was like a warehouse that yeah. we went to, got the couch, and they just grabbed some feet for yeah. it. Oh, okay, this looks good, and they threw it. To, so I would have had to drill. So we've had nothing until <laughs> you know I was like you know I got some wood screws. I got yeah. a kit. Let me just go and eyeball it. Gorgeous, man. Huge, huge difference. So yeah. I am a superhero with this drill. Yeah. That's my answer. Yeah, I mean, those those drills are fantastic. Uh, cordless, they'll go forever and really easy just to charge. And It came with rolling. two batteries, yeah. man. I can yeah. not swap them. I didn't yeah. have to buy anything else. I, I, yeah. I'm a fan of DeWalt. It's it's a, it's a really good brand. I Man, I'm going to have to cheat a little bit. I, I really, again, I, it's, I, I've just been home. I've been working. I, I don't really feel like I've, I've bought anything, but I, I am considering something. So maybe that'll be my, okay. what I hope I could maybe buy down the road if I, if I uh, convince myself. I've got a, I've got an old rusted out grill at home. I mean, literally every time I move it out from under the, the overhang, pieces of rust fall off the, oh, off no. the bottom of it. Yeah. It's just oh, terrible. No. So I got to, I come and sweep it up and everything. So I've got a I've got a buddy who who has been just telling you got to get one of these Komodo Joe grills. He said you can go you your steak seared, you can make pizza, you can do all this stuff. It'll go up to about eight hundred degrees, and uh, so that that's my uh, that's something I've I've got on the radar, but I'm not I'm not there. I have not convinced myself that that is. I feel like I can still get another season or two maybe out of this old rusted <laughs> out of this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've looked at wood pellet grills. So there's yeah. a Traeger. Traeger. It's not even a big one. Pretty small one that I've been looking at. Family friend they got one and they made us pizza from um some kind of lighter wood. But they went out there and they baked it on yeah. man with that wood smoke and it is. Phenomenal, especially so we eat a lot of vegetarian yeah. meals, um, not strictly vegetarian, but if you can get a little smoke flavor and some mushrooms or some peppers or onions, that's a big deal. 
So I've got that yeah, on my radar. The, the, the Traegers are really nice too. I've, I've looked at those as well. The, 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 those Komodo Joes, it's exactly what you said. They use this lump charcoal, which has that incredible okay. wood smoke infusion uh, that they give you. So very much like the Traeger that you had, uh, it'll, it'll give that kind of um, flavor infusion into food. I'll look, I'll look into the Komodo Joe and you know what? I have to check my tried and true wire cutter website to see if they have a recommendation. Cause I'm, I'm such a lamb or a sheep with that. It's like, they say it's good. That's the one to get. Yeah. Okay. I'm not even going to think about it. Yeah. And they, they don't ever seem to, I keep thinking, well, maybe there'll be a sale on this holiday or something, but it just is not happening. So I'm, I'm holding out, yeah. holding out. And hopefully the, the old rusty one will, will stay going for a little while longer. Nice. Well, Hey, great show. What do you think? Call it a, call it a day. I think we're at a wrap here. All right. Well, I tell you what, let's uh, let's wrap it up then. I think, uh, Randy, great time today. A lot of fun. Uh, hopefully, everybody listening in enjoyed the conversation. A lot of retail talk. I think we could have probably gone another hour or two. Huge thank you to everyone that listened in. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can catch us on uh, Apple. You can catch us on Spotify. If you want to check out what HashMap's doing in retail, HashMap Inc., dot com slash retail for all things retail and what we're doing user stories and podcasts all that kind of stuff be sure and send us any feedback or comments we would love to hear from you and we will see you soon on another episode take care thanks for listening to hashmap on tap be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.